if we've not met before, I'm James, and I'm um, married to Lucy. She was on the registration desk when you came in. You might have seen her in the beautiful blue jumper. I've got two small children, Joshua and Florrie, and I'm currently training to be a vicar. And uh, so I'm in Durham most of the time, and I'm on placement here. This is my church family, and um, it is a pleasure to be part of it. So a huge welcome to you. If we've not met before, I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. Do come and say hello. Um, an opening question to get us started. Turn to the person next to you. I'm going to give you a minute. So it's going to be quick, but this will whet our appetite for what God is going to be, I hope, unpacking with us this morning through his Bible. What is a promise of God that you are most looking forward to coming true for you personally? A promise of God that you're looking forward to coming true for you personally. One minute, person next to you, let's do some work together. You've got a minute. Try and answer that question. in the comments so do you've got about 20 seconds left what is a promise of God that you are most looking forward to coming true for you personally Friends, let me bring you back together. Is it Jesus's return? Is it the new creation, being free from sin, eternal life, the end of evil and suffering or being face to face with our God? There's lots of different promises God has made to us as his people. And as we look at the story of Joseph this morning, the question lingers, do we think God is gonna come true on the promises that he's made to Joseph? That's the challenge of the 20 years now that has happened in the Joseph story from where we left off a few weeks ago to where we're picking it up this morning. Will God forget? Has it been too long? Is it too difficult? Can God bring light out of the darkness? As Alice said, that is our series at the moment. That's our modern question that we're looking for ancient answers for. And I believe this story of Joseph as we look at Genesis 41 together this morning, can speak to that question. Is God trustworthy? Is he dependable? Is anything too difficult for our God? In the story, like I said, Joseph is now in prison. The promises of God to Joseph revealed in his dream, let me cast your mind back three weeks ago when Brogan kicked off this series, that he would reign with the stars and the sun and the moon would bow down to him. Imagery of Genesis 1, ruling and reigning. 
but other promises to Joseph and his family that, that God would make them into a great nation, that he would give them a land that is Canaan. Something around that Genesis 3 promise that out of their family would come one that would crush Satan. This is supposed to be a nation of godly people that would save the world from sin. And this promise has never been more vulnerable. Joseph in our story, he was the favored son and the love of his father almost killed him. The brothers sold him into slavery, threw him into pit. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been tracking the trajectory of the story down, down into the pit, down into Egypt, down further again with Terry last week into prison as Joseph with a story we're all too familiar with, really, where Potiphar's wife said, if you want to continue to be successful in your career, you need to sleep with me. And Joseph said, no, I won't do that. And so the story has been going down, down, down. And it's more than just literary art. It's part of the theological pattern of what God has always done with his people. He has gone down into the grave. And now in our story in Genesis 41, he will be raised up, exalted, to save people from starvation. So my main idea as we look at Genesis 41 today is that throughout all of this story, through the lows and through the highs, God has been in control. And if we have faith as the people in, as, as, as the people of God, that God is in control. I believe that injects a huge amount of fun into Christian living. And so the way we're gonna explore that is we're gonna look at God's control through Genesis 41. We're gonna look at the audacity of Joseph in this chapter. And then finally, we're gonna try and apply that to our lives. The sovereignty of God throughout the chapter, verses one to 32. The audacity of Joseph, verses 33 to 41. And how do I apply this, verses 41 to 57. So if you've got a Bible, open it up, Genesis 41. Have it open in your on your phones, a physical copy of your Bible, because I'll be making reference to some of those verses. And I'd love for you to see it for yourself. Let me just pray as we hold our Bibles open in front of us. As I've been studying in Durham this week, one of the things we looked at in the Bible is of the sufficiency of the scripture. So God, I thank you that in this book, there is everything that we need as the people of God to live joyfully and obediently for you today. There's everything that we need for salvation. This is your good gift to us. Would you unpack it to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Chapter 41, Genesis. Notice with me the sovereignty of God. Everything is in place to save the world. One person is needed to save um, the nation from starvation, a famine that is coming. So 13 years ago, God stashed one person that would be a savior in a prison, Joseph. Conveniently close to the center of the power of the world at the time. That is Pharaoh in Egypt, that's useful. He also got 13 years of management apprenticeship running the prison. That's also gonna be helpful in our story. And then in Genesis 41, we got introduced to the bad butlers. Pharaoh's personal bread maker and his cup bearer. I was reading one commentary this week. The literal translation of cup bearer is the captain of drinking. How many people here would like that on your LinkedIn profile picture? I am the captain of drinking. 
Um, but notice the control to get even the cupbearer next to Pharaoh in the story. That this man would have been created with the nose that he has to be able to explain and to taste the wine that is placed in front of him. To be just next to Pharaoh at the right point to say, Joseph, I know a man who can interpret dreams. Joseph, that's his role in the story. But think about the upbringing that he had, the people that he met to get that job that would connect Joseph to the most powerful man in the world. Now, the captain of drinking has a dream. Joseph interprets it, so does the bread maker. One of them is elevated and one of them perishes. But God has the cupbearer right where he needs him to be in the story. And God gives two dreams again to the most powerful man in the world, that is Pharaoh, just at the right time, just at the right moment. Verse eight, Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. None of the magicians, none of the wise men in all of the court could do it. Total failure of interpretation. And at that moment, are you ready? The captain of drinking is ready for his most important role in the story. Oh yeah, I know someone who can interpret dreams. I met him in prison. Joseph. There you go, he's fulfilled his role. Joseph. And here he comes, presented before the king, and he gives the interpretation. And the interpretation is this. Pharaoh has a dream of some skinny cows and some um, bigger cows and the skinny cows eat the healthy cows and in a sense Joseph is predicting there's going to be a famine that comes seven years of lack of water and seven years of abundant harvest and then the interpretation goes a little bit like this in short we are all going to die seven years in an economy where really they kept grain just for the one year the seeds to plant for the following year so seven years of famine in that time would have been total destruction total death not just for the city of egypt but for the people of god we're all going to die verse 33 and now let pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the entire land Unless, Pharaoh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, do you know somebody wise who might be able to help us with that? And your advisors don't seem very good at interpreting the dreams. They're not switched on, are they? What about me? And God, in his control, gives those seven years of abundance. The rain, the bugs, think about what needs to be controlled in order for that to happen. And then the seven years of famine, the lack of rain, it all comes true. Pause. Do we see as we look at chapter 41 that God, throughout this entire story, since we started, he has been in control of every detail? Will Joseph trust God in the bad times and now in the good times? God is in Control. Several times throughout the story, Joseph has had the opportunities to steal glory from God. Pharaoh has been saying, I hear you're good at dreams. Can you interpret mine? The butler's been saying, I know a man who is really good at dreams. And four times Joseph has replied, verse 16, verse 25, verse 28, verse 32. God will give. God has revealed God has shown and God will do it. And what am I to notice here in the story? 
Well, the challenge of the downward trajectory that we've been experiencing, that literal, literary form that's been happening as he's gone down into the pit, is will Joseph give up on the promises of God to his family and to him? Will he give up? Is this too difficult for God? Can God bring light from the darkness? And the challenge on the upward trajectory is still there. Will Joseph give credit to God? Will he say that God is in charge? What does he do? Well, he points to where the glory should go. Now, I don't think this is the main point in the story, but it is really helpful for us to consider. How do we apply this to our lives as the people of God here in Newcastle today? Are we thriving? or surviving? Are we in the pit or are we ruling with the stars? How do you feel in your journey with God today? Do we depend on him in the darkness and in the light? Do you feel like giving up? Or do you recognize that you often take the credit? One of the truths in this chapter of God's Bible, his gift to us, is that we are his servants, caught up in his service, and to God be the glory. Next, I want us to notice the audacity of Joseph, verses 33 to 40. Now, I'm not sure that this is, um, well, actually, at verse 32, he's done this job where he's gone to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's got him out of prison, he's been shaved, he's been given new clothes, and he's given this God-inspired interpretation of Pharaoh's dream to him. Now, most of us then in that situation, I don't know about you, but I, I'd probably stop. I think I've done the very thing that God has maybe brought me to do. I've given the interpretation. Now, now things can kick into place um, and people should be okay. They've got what they need from me. But at verse 33, notice with me, Joseph is still speaking. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. What is he doing? He's been dragged out, shaved. He's way out of his league and he begins to pitch to Pharaoh for the second most important job in the world or to be the second most important man in the world at that time. Can you think of anybody Pharaoh, anybody wise, able to understand things? Give me the job, that's what Joseph is saying. And he doesn't just pitch it, he has a detailed plan of how to save the political structures of the people. He's got a tax rate in mind, 20%. He's got this disaster relief plan worked out. It'll be over 14 years. We'll save for seven. We'll spend over seven. People will come to us. He's got major building projects up his sleeve huge building of storehouses and how they will work. He's ready in that one moment before Pharaoh. And here's what I want us to take away, I think, from that part of the story, is that belief in the sovereignty of God and understanding that he is in control should not lead to silence and inactivity. There's an understanding of the control of God, the sovereignty of God that leads to Christian puddings, that plays very happily to my own laziness and to my fears. God has a plan to save the world, 
that is true. And he will do it anyway, regardless of what I do. That's true as well. So maybe I'll just sit at home, have time in the warm, and watch Netflix. He'll do it anyway, regardless if I get involved. But if we do that, we are no longer living in joyful obedience to our God. It takes all of the fun out of Christian living. We're made for so much more. And the audacity of Joseph in this story to pitch, to live boldly, to have belief in the sovereignty of God is actually the only way we as Christian people, brothers and sisters in Christ, can be bold and to take risks. It's surprising, isn't it? If the most outgoing people for Jesus are those that don't actually believe that God is in control. If it's in our Christian unions or in our workplaces or in our friendship groups, if it's people just going, I'm taking a punt, I don't know what's gonna happen, I'm just gonna give it a go. And they just, in the strength of their personality or worse, in belief in their own skill, ability or words to convince people of the goodness of God, if they're the people who are taking the most risks for God, that seems backward, doesn't it? But the people who know that God is in charge should be the people taking risks all over the place. Genesis 41, actually all the way through Genesis, God is in control. So why shouldn't he elevate this enslaved prisoner, this trafficked brother, this accused man to run an empire? God's in control. Maybe he'll say yes. Radical, dynamic Christian living only, become, only comes from a belief that God is in charge. It sets us free from fear. There's nothing that I can do that can upset God's plans to reveal himself to someone. It sets me free from guilt and shame. If I step out and I've been unsuccessful in an opportunity, whatever unsuccessful might look like in the past, then I don't need to despair. My clumsy words, my confusion, my lack of knowledge is no obstacle to God accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. Can you see how free that makes us of fear, of guilt, of shame? The truth is this that God is in control and it brings a huge amount of fun to Christian living. And we're thinking about this at the moment as we parent our kids. You might have noticed it's Halloween and Halloween is happening over half term. It seems that all of the parties are Halloween related. What do we do as a family? How can we love Jesus, build community and um, no, follow Jesus, love Newcastle and build community if we're not in the room with our friends? If we, if we choose to not go to the party or engage in that thing. But actually one of the joyful things, the fun in the story is, well, God, I believe that you've called us here for a reason, to Newcastle, to this city, you've placed us on the street, you've put us in to be a good neighbor. How are you gonna use this, God? How are you gonna turn this around to open doors, to lead us to opportunities, to talk about the things of you, to share about your goodness? That's part of the fun of living for God. So actually, belief in God's control actually injects a huge amount of fun into Christian living. How are you gonna turn this around, God? What doors are you gonna open 
next. You know, maybe you work in the city, or why not ask your boss this week if you can use the main meeting room in your offices to run Alpha? Maybe he'll say yes, or she will say yes. Sorry for making assumptions there. But maybe, he, maybe they will say, yes, you can use the main meeting room in our office to run Alpha. Wouldn't that be fun? Maybe when you're with a friend this week and they're sharing about some of the things that's going well in their week or struggling, maybe you go, can I pray for you? Maybe they'll say yes. God is in control. Don't get hung up on your ability to do it. If God is calling them to himself, there is literally nothing we can do to stuff it up. We just get to live in joyful obedience to God. We're looking for signs of him opening the doors. He is in control. The fun in Christian living is just having a go and seeing where it leads. Because he loves this city. He loves you. And he loves the person in front of you. And God will reveal himself to those whom he chooses. Let's be audacious and slightly terrified because God is truly in charge. So there's a right kind of application to some of these truths though. Joseph knows it and that's why he says, please, can I rule the world if you don't mind? And verse 37, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his officials. Surprising, isn't it? Because given them a lot of them are wise men and magicians, you know, one of them in the room is also the number two in the kingdom and he's just been demoted. And can we find anyone like this man, verse 38, in whom there is the Spirit of God? This is the first time in the Bible that the Spirit of God has been described as being on a person, the Spirit of wisdom. They recognise God's work. They bless it and they elevate it. Verse 41, Joseph is now in charge of Egypt. Let me read this out. I'm going to read um, six verses for us now to hear out loud, uninterrupted. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger, put it on Joseph's finger, dressed him in robes of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck, had him ride in the chariot as his second in command, and the people shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or a foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephaniah Paneh and gave Asenath daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went through the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. The ring is kind of a credit card or red box, whatever it is that enables the chancellor of the Exchequer to spend all of the king's money. The robe, this time it's of one colour, not of many colours, but is now on Joseph and is Joseph in wearing this robe becomes the image of the king. He's wearing his newfound status and then there's extras in the story. He's got a fancy car. He's got a full-blown PR team shouting about how good he is. He's got the society wedding. I don't know what it would be, the equivalent of marrying in this day and age, maybe Jude Bellingham or something like that. Everybody's talking about this wedding. And without your word, verse 44, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. I think few people in all of history have had that kind of power, that autocratic imperial power. It's immense. And so Joseph then goes on to action the plan. He puts it into operation and he exceeds at every turn. Verse verse 55, he saves Egypt. Verse 57, he is now ready to save the world. 
When the fabbing comes, Joseph is ready. The only place to get grain in the whole of the region is Joseph. Crazy, isn't it? What a story. God is in control. The audacity of Joseph. Notice the potential, though, in the city. And I think this is maybe something that God might be speaking to us about as a church. Joseph's story in Genesis portrays cities and these storehouses that he's made. This is the first time we hear a good news story about the city in the Bible. Before that, they've all been terrible. Cain and Abel, the murder happens just in the city, outside the city. Sodom and Gomorrah. But right now here in Genesis 41, we have a good news story like a precursor to Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem that will come. As Brogan started three weeks ago, they've been expelled from the garden and God is doing something out on the hills, often with shepherding people. But this is the first time the city is a place where through the favoured son, people can come and encounter life, can be saved from death. It's a city where innovation and creativity is happening, when the spirit of wisdom rests on people and they're empowered to do good and to save people from starvation and experience salvation and life. Now, these very storehouses in the Exodus story will also become the very thing that Pharaoh gets the Israelites building that will be a sign of their oppression and their death. Cities are a complicated thing in the Bible. And we ought to pray for the leaders of our cities, for the spirit of wisdom to be in them and to be moving through them so that good and godly people under God's control and his sovereignty can use cities to bring life and creativity and innovation, that people may come to cities again and experience the salvation of God. We ought to pray for our cities and for wise leadership. But notice God's promises never fail. Joseph was going to reign. He was going to rule. Every time he's been knocked down, he ends up ruling, blessing other people, Potiphar's house, in prison, all of Egypt, all of the Middle East gathering. God is in control. He is bringing light out of darkness. That is the big theological point in Genesis 41. So how do we apply this? How do we apply the revelation that God is in control for Joseph to us? and live joyful, obedient, fun lives for God here in Newcastle today. Because Joseph, he's peculiar, isn't he? God is definitely doing this unique thing in and through him. He's part of the people of God and evidently there's something specific here. God is just moving in his life and around him. Can it be that if we, like Joseph, overcome the prison experiences in our lives that things will just work out fine for us. If we trust the Lord and obey his commandments, does it mean that if we turn down sex with Potiphar's wives that we will become the second most important people in Newcastle and be able to rule and to reign to the glory of God? No, we all can't do that. What's the most powerful city in the world today or country? There might be one or two candidates for that. That means only one or two of us in this room can do that. That's not the pattern that we read about in the Bible. Lots of Christians obey God. They go to prison, they get killed, including people like Peter and Paul in the New Testament. So let's think about this. What might God be saying to us through this story? Who is Joseph in this story? Who is he to us? Who is he the image of, really? It's Jesus. 
Joseph is the image of the king. And in that sense, suddenly a whole load of details make sense to us. The strain of trying to be like Joseph is pretty huge, isn't it? I'm nothing like Joseph. He's nothing like me. He resists sin. He goes on trusting God even when things go bad. He is, as we'll see next week, he's kind, he's forgiving, he's generous, he's trustworthy. And Joseph, his story follows the pattern of the cross, that downward trajectory into the pit, into slavery, into Egypt, into prison, and now up to be exalted to save many. He's got Jesus's character. He's got Jesus's story. Where am I in this story? I thought about it over the summer. When I read the Bible, we did a summer series on heroes in the faith. Why is it when I read the story like David and Goliath, I assume that I'm David rather than Goliath? Why is it when I'm looking for a, a character in a story to identify with, I assume I'm more like Joseph than I am Potiphar's wife? That would be something, wouldn't it? Imagine reading the story that way. Who am I in the story? Who are we in this story? We're likely to be the brothers. That's a much better fit, isn't it? Let's just put them on and imagine ourselves in their shoes for a moment. We get jealous. We want to kill Jesus. We want to get him out of the way so we can steal his things. We make bad moral choices. We lie, we get scared, we run out of food and we need lots and lots of help. We stand in Jesus's mercy, caught out, totally guilty for the crimes that we deserve death for, unable to speak because we're so frightened. <coughs> They're the people I can identify with in the Bible story. The threat to God's promises in Genesis, 37 to 50, but particularly here in chapter 41, well, it's the famine, isn't it, initially? Or as Ben unpacked with us two, three weeks ago, the brothers, the nasty people who come to try and cancel the promises of God by taking out the man in which God has spoken to. But the threat in this story now is the famine, death due to starvation because the world is cursed and broken, full of suffering. I'm in danger because I am going to die. Evil and death, the curse of the world caused by sin. That's the threat in the story. The brothers are going to die and they get rescued. They get rescued by Joseph and we get rescued by Jesus. That's the fun in the Christian life. God is in control. But if we miss the rescue in the story, if we try and rule and reign like Joseph, we miss the fun of God's rescue. He has come to save us in Jesus. The fun in the story is the people of God are a shambles and they get rescued by Jesus, by Joseph. God brings light out of the darkness. He is trustworthy. He is dependable. This story is about God rescuing his people from darkness, just as Joseph rescued the world from hunger.